Okay, Jesse, last week's crime took 20 years to solve. What's the story this time around? A love affair between a casino owner and a much younger woman he met at a strip club ends in a mysterious death, infidelity, rampant drug use, betrayal, theft, millions in buried treasure, and maybe even mafia ties? It's a wild one today on Love Murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is the Love Murder Podcast. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast whose name I have just said three times about terrible schemes, broken dreams, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are digging this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you want to support the show more directly, you can head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Yes, and you can get yourself some sweet-ass bonus episodes. That's what I was just going to say. We just <laughs> finished our 33rd bonus episode. Yes, we did. So the specials this month, I recapped a who the bleep did I marry, and yes, it was bleeptastic. It was great. And I covered stalker stories for September. Yes, and that was fantastic. Andy delves into the psychology of stalkers as well as a countdown of some of the craziest celebrity stalking cases. Well, we'd like to thank the people who have already joined us and maybe enjoying those episodes. So this week, we would like to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome to Sarah O, Danny S, and Tracy R., Kayla G, Casey J, and Callie M, Sharice M, Annette B, and Michaela B, Terry B, Aubrey C, and Sierra S, and Lupe M, Molly V, and LaCoria. Welcome, y'all. Okay, so we got a crazy case today. I actually had a lot of recommendations for this one, and I do think y'all really love a Las Vegas case. Well, you know, I love a Las Vegas case. I know you do. I know someone else loves a Las Vegas case, too. One of our patrons. Shout out, Jen. Yes. Shout out to Jen. We love you. We hope you get work soon. Actually, that makes her sound like she's not working, but it's just because of the strikes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we have a very interesting Sin City case today, but I am not going to tell you anything more when I could just get right to it. Yeah, please. At 2.10 in the morning on Saturday, September 19th, 1998, so almost exactly 25 years ago, almost to the day, a Nye County, Nevada Sheriff's Department sergeant received a call that there appeared to be a major disturbance in the middle of the desert on pretty rural land that belonged to the well-known and connected Binion family of Las Vegas. When the sergeant arrived, he found two pickup trucks, a lot of heavy machinery, including an excavator, a crew of men, and lots of desert dust flying in the high-octane construction lights. You know those night lights? Yeah. So 
he's looking at the situation and he's thinking, what the hell are these guys digging up in the middle of nowhere at two in the morning on a Saturday night? Yeah. So he approached and he spoke to a man who identified himself as Rick Tavish, who was a good looking guy in his early 30s with dark hair who appeared to seem in charge. As the sergeant called for backup and looked around, he also noticed that there was a big tractor with a heavy-duty trailer and a gigantic belly dump truck, which sounds like a lot of fun, a belly dump truck. It's apparently a huge truck or trailer that has a double bottom so that you can dump directly into the bottom of the truck. Like if you just throw it in, it goes like down. Yes, exactly. So this thing, he looks over and he sees that this belly dump truck is straining. It looks heavy. It looks full of something. So whatever they are digging up in the middle of the night in the desert weighs a lot. It does not appear also to be on the up and up, given the covert nature of what is going on. Yeah, I feel like anytime something like that is happening at two in the morning, that's not a good sign. I also feel like, any digging in the desert in the middle of the night is a little sketch. Always. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, that's what the sheriff's deputies and the sergeant wanted to know. So at first, Rick and one of his workers, who appeared to be a foreman type or somebody who was second in charge, tried to say that they were removing ordnance, which is military weapons and ammunition. And so I did watch a dateline. There's a guy who was there who's on the dateline, and he's saying, I think that he thought when he said that, that we'd go, oh, okay, well, we're going to back off. And that was not what they were going to do. They were going to ask some questions, ask for permitting, of course. Yeah. That's not going to fly. So then Rick says, no, 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 sorry. It's not ordinance. It's concrete. We are actually getting rid of this land. The Binions are selling it. And there's some old concrete foundations on the land. So we had to remove them in order to sell the property. Uh, So changing the story that quickly? Changing the story that quickly, but he's also looking at this gigantic heaving belly dump truck and he's saying, so is that what's in that truck? It's just concrete. And Rick says, yeah, it's concrete. He's like, okay, concrete doesn't weigh that much. There's no way that that truck would look like it. He's like, do you mind if I go take a look? And Rick's like, sure, go take a look. They open the belly dump truck. And just a pile of silver coins and bullion are inside. Just literal tons of silver treasure. Oh, my God. Which is exactly what the authorities thought. So at that point, he looks back at Rick Tavish because it had been in the truck but under a tarp. And he lifted the tarp up and literal coins fell out. This is like a Scrooge McDuck fantasy but in silver. Yeah. And so he looks back at Rick Tavish, kind of like, what the fuck, dude? And Rick Tavish looks at him and goes, okay, I lied. (sighs) Well, it would not be the first time nor the last time that Rick had or would lie. And it certainly wasn't the first time Rick had engaged in something morally dubious, if not straight up criminal. But was he capable of murder? And just how the hell had he come to be in this situation? Yeah. The answer may just lie with a 26-year-old exotic dancer turned live-in girlfriend of an eccentric and 
wildly interesting casino owner named Ted Binion, a man who had just passed away less than 48 hours before Rick Tabish was caught trying to load millions of dollars in silver into his trucks. That's some insurance policy right there. (laughs) Something else. The authorities had thought Ted, a well-known bon vivant and drug user, had simply overdosed. That's what they believe was the cause of his death. But now, now with somebody digging up his millions in silver and trying to get away with it into the night, they wondered if there just might be more to this story. Yeah, I'd say. Today, we'll be talking about an unlikely romance, or maybe in Las Vegas, an all-too-likely romance. Family feuds, cowboys, poker, bad behavior, the mob, obsession, greed, and perhaps justice, question mark? Perhaps not, depending on how you look at it. We are going to have lots to discuss today, Andy. Again, many thanks to, I think it was a very decent handful, if not two handfuls of you guys who recommended this case. My main source today is the book Death in the Desert by Kathy Scott. And I also watched a Dateline episode called What Happened in Vegas. It was like a classic Dateline that they had kind of revamped and re-released, which was season 30, episode 13, an episode of Blood and Money on Peacock. And I also consulted a crimelibrary.org long-form piece on Ted Binion by crime writer Gary King. Gary King actually did also publish a book on this case as well. I did not get that book, but I think that the piece I read on Crime Library was actually sourced from that book. Cool. Also, everybody's favorite. And somebody just asked about this on the discussion group, which if you guys are on Facebook, please join the private discussion group about which of our cases have had Lifetime movies. And I started trying to break down and I only was at probably five or six and I'd already hit three. And I was like, okay, this has to be a job for somebody else to figure out all of the Lifetime movies associated with our episodes because I don't have time for this. Yeah, And I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to start the book couple of next year because I also don't have time for that right now. I'm actually very proud of you for pushing that to next year. (laughs) My When you said that, I was like, I'm very proud. That's like a big step for Jesse, guys, to like not take on everything all the time. I'm trying. I want to. I really do. But yeah, next year for a book club. And there is a fantastic Lifetime movie associated with this one, which I did watch, and we will talk about at the very end of the episode. Okay, so before there was Rick Tabish with a whole belly dump full of silver, or young Sandy Murphy gyrating at Cheetah Strip Club, there was the Binion family. So who are the Binions, and how did they make their millions? Ted's father, so Ted is the man we'll be talking about primarily today, His father, Benny, had moved to Las Vegas from Texas in 1946. However, I would say moved is generous and fled, criminally fled, seems more appropriate for what happened. Got it. He was running from the Texas law. He came into Las Vegas. And this guy was a real cowboy, a real outlaw, a real charmer, and apparently the Las Vegas officials liked him so much that Nevada refused to extradite him back to Texas. Oh, my God. Wow. Yep. They said, we're keeping him. So he showed up back in, I mean, in the 1940s, Vegas was still barely the strip in the desert. Yeah. It was still the wild, wild west. And he was the type of person who was going to make his mark. He had married his wife when she was only 16 years old and he was 28. 
Uh, sir. Sir. I mean, this is some real out there desert cowboy stuff. I mean, that's like basically a frontier marriage. Yeah. So he had married his wife who was named Frances, but I think she went by Teddy Jane. She was Frances Teddy Jane. Cute. Yes. And they had five children between them. They had eldest son, Jack, and then they had Ted, whom we will be talking about today. And then three daughters, Brenda, Barbara, and Becky Binion. All the bees. Yes. And by the time he moved to Vegas, he had already been charged with murder twice. Benny. What? <laughs> yes, I'm telling you, real outlaw status. He had started bootlegging as basically a teenager. And the first charge of murder happened in 1931 when he was bootlegging and apparently another fellow bootlegger had stepped to him or tried to steal his booze and he had retaliated and he got a slap on the wrist for that one. And the second was another, I'm not sure if it was bootlegging or a different type of, because he also got into gambling. Obviously he got into gambling. That's why he ended up in Vegas. But I think he was running gambling games at that point and another rival came and tried to take him out And he did kill him, but he got off on that one for self-defense because there were enough witnesses that said that the guy tried to kill him first. Okay, good. Yes. So he has already killed two men. There was a whole host of other things that he was wanted for in Texas, mostly involving, I think, illegal gaming and larceny and goodness knows what else. He came into Las Vegas like a storm through hard work, intimidation, connections and charm and what I'm sure had to be a whole boatload of illegal activity. Benny became a big player in Las Vegas. He opened the Horseshoe Casino that would be later known as Binion's Horseshoe or even just Binion's. And I think now Bally's has been turned into the Horseshoe. It's gone vintage to go back to this time in the world. Crazy. Yes, he opened the Horseshoe Casino in 1951, and he did turn it into quite the gambling establishment. Well, other clubs at that time were trying to get into like the ritzy rat pack type of thing. He was like, this is a place for cheap booze, cheap food, and good gambling. Like, Amazing. He was trying to make it more of like a, like a river gambling steamboat type of experience. But it's smart because not everyone could afford like the glitzy rat pack situation. So it's like the common man like could go to his place. Yeah. And he did great. I mean, he got along with everyone. There is a statue of him. I'm gonna have to figure out exactly where it is. I think it must be off the strip, but it's it was erected in front of the old horseshoe of Benny because he became a huge figure in this founding era of what Las Vegas was going to become. And he got along with all of the politicians. He got along with all the mobsters. Everyone respected him so much. And whenever anybody involved with the law or politicians or just a regular police officer who was a beat cop just coming off and went into his restaurant to have lunch, he would tell his waitstaff to never give anyone who was in law enforcement a check. Oh, it was one of those things like the um, Kathy Scott is somebody who worked with a lot of lawyers and cops and different people to get these stories because she's a a big true crime writer. And she said that all of the people she talked to that are in that world had so much respect for him. And he also was the one who started the World Series of Poker. What? Yes. The inaugural World Series of Poker was held 
at the horseshoe and it was held there for many years, even as the casino began to decline and bigger casinos opened up. I think they held it there for many years in honor of the fact that it was actually Benny Binion who started it. Crazy. Mm-hmm. So he was absolutely legendary in Vegas. He was very well-respected, very well-liked. He knew how to woo the right people. All the kids that he had were pretty hardworking too. And Benny's goal was to hand the gambling empire down to his kids someday. However, the family's legacy was going to be marred by personal tragedy. One of the Binion's daughters, Barbara, died of an overdose. So trigger warning for suicide here, guys. I don't know exactly what precipitated this, but she may have tried to kill herself with a gun by shooting herself in the head, but survived, but was very disfigured. Oh, my God. Yes. And then she resorted to a drug overdose. So that's obviously incredibly tragic. And in 1967, Ted, who was at the time, I believe, a young man or older teenager, was the target of a kidnapping attempt. Oh, my gosh. When the alleged kidnapper was found shot dead, it seemed like everyone looked the other way as far as law enforcement because the suspicion was that it was Benny, Ted's dad, who had taken the trash out. Give me my fucking kid. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A retired police captain spoke to author Kathy Scott and said that Benny's motto was, kill them dead and they won't give you no more trouble. I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's true. They won't be able they, to. They won't. It's, it's quite literally true, yes. But you will get arrested. <laughs> you, you will get in trouble. <laughs> You will go to jail forever. You will have a whole different type of trouble. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They won't give you trouble per se. <laughs> at only 21 years old, Ted took over running the gambling floor at the horseshoe. He was said to be mathematically gifted. I think he, he only went to a semester or two of college, but he had an innate sense of numbers. He could calculate odds or the house take in gambling transactions in his head. Yeah. So he's going to be a genius on the floor. He was great on the floor. Everyone said he was an intellectual person who had just never studied. He was a huge history buff. He was constantly reading historical books. He was watching hours and hours of the History Channel and other documentaries. That was like his game. He was gregarious. Everybody absolutely loved him. He took over running the World Series of Poker for his father, and he really became the brand ambassador in the face of the casino. And by all accounts, it seems like people in this world really love Ted, but Ted had vices. Even when he was running the floor, even though he was so brilliant, people said that he constantly smelled like marijuana. He seemed like he was under the influence. And that wasn't the extent of it. If it was just a little pot smoking, especially if we're talking about the 60s and 70s, that's one thing. But by the time he was in his 50s, he had been a hardcore heroin user for nearly 20 years. Whoa. Yes, which is a shockingly long time to be a hardcore heroin user. Yeah, I feel like most people aren't lucky enough to be alive that long. Exactly. But maybe if you're continuously doing it and not recovering and doing it, like maybe it's different. Well, maybe if you also have the funds because he had so much yeah. money and his family had so much money that he could stay using it. Exactly. And while Ted had eventually married his longtime love, a woman named Doris, whom he had been with for a very long time, it sounds like they got together very young and they were together for almost 10 years. 
before they got pregnant with their daughter, Bonnie, and got married. And then they were together for, I think, 20 years after that. So he had a very serious relationship. He had a child in his life. But it did not seem like becoming a family man had slowed Ted down at all, unfortunately. He was worth about $50 million, and he liked to spend it on drugs, on a good time, and on girls. And where, Andy, in Vegas, can you find girls in a very good time, depending on what you think a good time is? (laughs) (laughs) Really anywhere, but if you really want to get wild, you can go to the very, very good strip clubs. I feel like the Las Vegas strip clubs are a different caliber of strip clubs. Las Vegas and like Atlanta have the best strip clubs in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. So it was at the Cheetahs Strip Club in 1995 that he met a 23-year-old bleached blonde exotic dancer named Sandy Murphy who would alter the course of all of the Binion's lives and many others, and potentially end Ted's. Is that her real name? Sandy Murphy? Yes. (laughs) It wasn't Sandy Beach. (laughs) Although our show is called Love Murder, anyone who listens closely can tell that the part we're most interested in is definitely the love side. And when it comes to love, there is enough to worry about without worrying about unwanted smells as well. That's why we're so excited to share this week's sponsor, Lumi. Lumi whole body deodorant is clinically proven to control odor everywhere. And they do mean everywhere for a full 72 hours. That is quite a few Patreon bonus episodes you could fit in there. You know it. As an OBGYN, Lumi's founder, Dr. Shannon Klingman, met thousands of women concerned with odor below the belt. Through clinical testing, she found that it wasn't the vagina to blame, but bacteria on the skin. So she created Lumi, a skin-safe aluminum-free deodorant that actually works and works everywhere with over 150,000 five-star reviews to prove it. I have always wanted to try a natural deodorant But I found that I could never really find one that works, that really holds off the gym stank, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. And this one absolutely does and does over time. I know. I'm kind of obsessed with their little to-go deodorant wipes. They're perfect for me, especially when I got off of a red eye. It's going to be exactly what I use this Sunday when I get off the plane. Yes, I love that. And also perfect for the gym bag as well. Yep. If you want to check Lumi out, their start pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like the mini body wash and deodorant wipes we were just talking about, as well as free shipping. And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code LOVEMURDER at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi Deodorant and use the code LOVEMURDER. Andy, there are so many people out there working so hard every day and still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. Exactly. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. 
Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. This product just makes so much sense to me as a way to give people more choice and more control. It's a way for people to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps or other modern financial challenges. Seriously, life is tricky enough without having to worry about the logistical timing of when your paycheck is going to land. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. So yeah, we're going to talk about Sandy and whether or not she was actually an exotic dancer because naturally she has denied that since. Sandy grew up in the middle-class suburb of Bellflower, which is just outside of Southeast Los Angeles County. Do you know where that is? South Angela. South Los Angeles County, sorry. Oh, yeah, Bellflower. I know where that is. Yes, so that's where she grew up, which is just north of Long Beach, I think, or just south of Long yes. Beach. Yep. yep. She was a sweet, good-looking girl. She was very athletic. She got awards for the sports that she did. She also competed in beauty pageants. She was crowned the Miss Bellflower pageant queen. But bad things had happened to Sandy that kind of knocked her life off course, it seemed. Her biological mother had abandoned the family around the time when Sandy was pretty little, I think, still. There were four siblings altogether, and I think she was still in the toddler or very young preschool age at the time the mother left the family. I could not find out any information about why that happened. Author Kathy Scott said that her biological mother was still alive and was actually in Las Vegas when all of this was going down, but they did not seem to have contact. And in fact, Sandy refers to her stepmother who eventually came into her life, who was also coincidentally named Sandy, so Sandy Sr., as her mother. That's her mom who came into her life and became her real mom. And so even though now she had a more solid family atmosphere, Sandy had a lot of troubles earlier on life. So trigger warning right now, guys, for sexual assault to a minor. Sandy's stepmother would later say that Sandy's bright and sunny outlook and disposition had been forever altered due to her being raped as a young teenager. I don't know exactly the details about who the perpetrator was or if they were ever brought on criminal charges or at all. I just know what her mother has said. She still was very optimistic. She got good grades. And that all ended when she ended up getting a much older boyfriend. It sounds like significantly older and was described in a different thing that I read as a family friend. So I don't really know how this all started, if this was somebody who was a grown man, it sounds like, who got involved with her as a teenager, and with one semester to go of high school, she dropped out and started a business with him. No. Yeah. 
So she moved to Huntington Beach. She was living with this much older man. And that was her type. She talks about it, I think, on one of the shows. She was on either the Dateline or she was also on 48 Hours at one point talking about how she thought that older men were very interesting, that they liked to talk about the news and politics and world events, and that she didn't think men under 35 could be very interesting, which apparently she changes her tune later on. We'll talk about that. (laughs) But yeah, so she dropped out of school to be with this guy that was probably criminally with her at that time. And then she would later say that she had worked at a Toyota dealership, I believe, and that she was financially doing well for herself. But it seems like as somebody on the outside looking in that she was maybe drifting a little bit because she pops back up in 1995 at the age of 23, taking a trip to Las Vegas from the LA area. And for some reason, she and a girlfriend who was also a lot older than her, I think her girlfriend was like already 41, which is not a big deal. I mean, we all have friends of different ages, but it seems like obviously Sandy was somebody who was attracted to hanging out with older people, maybe a little too old for a younger person. Yes. Yeah. And they went to Vegas and she said that she lost all of her money within the first couple of days of being in Vegas gambling at Caesar's Palace. She said it was something like thirteen to $15,000. What? Yes. So she said, basically, I lost my life savings the first few days I was in Vegas And so she and this girlfriend went to Cheetahs so that they could make some money. So this is where the conversation diverges, let's say. So she said that she and her girlfriend were selling costumes to the exotic dancers and that she was merely modeling the costumes she made. In another source I saw, it was that she was trying to sell her underwear to exotic dancers. I was like, this is an absurd story. So there was no employment records of her working at Cheetahs, which means nothing, but there were records of her being employed as an exotic dancer at another club that was called the Olympic Garden. So she says on the dateline, no, I didn't work at Cheetahs. I was just selling costumes. That's what she says. That's her story. She's sticking to it. Okay. So what we do know is that she was definitely on stage wearing a Dallas Cowgirls little bitty outfit when she made the acquaintance of Sir Ted Binion. So I guess she was on the stage to model (laughs) the cowboy's outfit and not strip. Strip. This is really stretching my imagination here, but we're going to go with it. I don't know if you're allowed on stage if you're not stripping. (laughs) If you're just peddling your wares to the other strippers. Hold on, everybody. We got a fashion show. They're not trying to find clothes to put on. (laughs) Kind of goes against the point. So she also had a name. Gary King's account said that she was introduced as a name, which seems strange unless this was her fashion line with her story. She was called the Irish Venus. She's not Irish from Ireland, by the way, although it seems like her ancestors were. Her I last mean, name yeah, is Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. yeah. There you go. But I just want to make it clear because a lot of times people from other countries are like, when Americans are like, yeah, I'm Irish. They're like, are you from Ireland? And it's like, well, I was born here and my grandfather was born here, but my great grandfather's Ireland. They're like, nah, you're not Irish. Well, she's grasping for straws here. You know, <laughs> the Irish Venus. 
She needs something. Something. So she's an Irish Venus. So he immediately took a liking to her right away. He was entranced with her. Now, Sandy has taken the blame in a lot of accounts for ending Ted's 30-year-old relationship and subsequent marriage to Doris. Yeah. But it sounded like at the time that he actually met Sandy, Ted's marriage was already in a pile of trouble. He had been obviously abusing drugs for a very long time. There were other girls involved. It was also looking like Ted might lose his gaming license. Huh. Which is a very big problem for somebody who runs a casino. Yeah. And getting a gaming license is very serious. And he had had drug offenses. He had had tangles with the law. He also had some ties to people that were in the mafia. Okay. So there was a rule that anyone who had a gaming license couldn't associate with anyone that was in the mafia, a known person that associated with the mafia, or had been convicted of uh, certain types of felonies. It's like all of the <laughs> people who had licenses when it first started exactly. were tied to the mafia. So it's like, that's not really fair, but whatever. Yeah, so he was about to lose his his license, which would mean that his sister Becky was going to be taking over the entire casino. It was a lot. It was a lot of stress. It was a lot of pressure. And I'm definitely not giving this guy a pass because he was acting like a big old dickhead to his wife of many years and his child who was a teenager at this point. But his way of blowing off steam was to go to these strip clubs. So I do not think, I think a lot of times Sandy gets painted as like this harlot who wooed him. It's like, he was already out there. I'm not going to give her any accolades either for everything else we're going to talk about today, just so you know. But at the same time, I don't think he was exactly an innocent man who was just happened to be at Cheetah's that night. Seemed like he was a very good regular who spent a lot of money there and everybody liked quite a bit. So that night, Sandy had no idea who he was. She had basically just landed in Las Vegas. She did not know who he was. Apparently, she kept calling him Ted Bunyan, which was annoying him because his name is literally on a casino. It was Binion's horseshoe. He's like, I'm Binion. And she kept calling him, okay, Bunyan. So she didn't know who he was. She didn't care. She knew he must have had money because he's flashing around all, all over the place. Yeah. But people do that in Vegas even if they don't have money. It's true. That is actually a very good point. Like, if they won that day and they actually don't have money, like, they <laughs> would flash it the same way. So so they're hanging out, and he got her to come sit with him for a while and chat with her. But somewhere along the night, he did something that offended her. Apparently, he had tried to, like, take this wad of cash, about $1,700, and somehow give it to her, shove it to her, put it somewhere. We don't know exactly how he offended her by giving her this money in some manner that she found offensive. And she took it and she threw it back in his face. So she didn't want it? She apparently didn't want it the way he was giving it to her. And maybe this goes along with her story that she was just selling costumes. <laughs> she didn't want it. I don't know why. I don't know the details of exactly how this went down. All I do know is that there was people present who said she threw $1,700 back in his face and stormed off. And wow. he was sprung. He loved it. I mean, Ted is from this family that's very well known in Vegas from the time he was a little kid. He was a casino owner's kid. Everybody knew he had money. He told friends the next day 
that it was the first time that a woman didn't want him for his money, didn't want his money, didn't take his money, and gave him attitude. So he was very, very into this. And it seems like pretty soon Sandy figured out exactly who he was and what kind of money he had. And her tune changed a little bit as well. Yeah, so he kept going back to see her. And one thing led to another and they got into a very serious relationship despite the fact that he is still married at this point. (sighs) Yeah. And he was seeing other people. There's a story about how on their second date, he invited her to a party, but he had invited two dates. Like he didn't think Sandy was going to come or he didn't think this other woman was going to come. And by the way, neither of these women are his wife. He invited both of these women. And when Sandy showed up and saw that there was already a woman with him, she said, who are you? And she said, I'm his date. And she said, I'm his date. And she looked at him and she goes, you better choose right now or I'm walking away. And he told the other girl to walk. So she had him. Yeah, because she's spicy. She's feisty. She's ball busting. She's very attractive. She's very young. So yes, he's still married. But after Doris heard Ted on the phone making a date with Sandy, she said that that was it. That was it for her. She was done with the marriage. They had been through a lot together. This was the final straw. There had always been random girls around, but he obviously seemed to really like this one. So she left. She took their teenage daughter, Bonnie, and the two Binion women moved to Texas. Now, I have to say that, and I'm going to give a trigger warning for domestic violence here. It sounds like Doris had gone through hell and back with Ted. Not only was there his constant heroin use, There was also allegations that Ted was physically abusive towards Doris. According to Death in the Desert, a source close to the former couple alleged that Ted had suspected Doris of having an affair with her personal trainer. We do not know if that is true or false. And he had gone ballistic and attacked Doris physically. The gardener said that he witnessed seeing Doris with black and blue cheeks and red scratches and bruises on her arms after an altercation. Horrible. Yeah. There's just so much this story that people didn't delve into really what his life with Doris had been like, which was over three decades when really his relationship that we're going to talk about today with Sandy was only three years. Yeah. But there's so much that happens in this. And this is the part that's more criminal that obviously we're going to be talking about that. But I just can't help but think that so much of a life to share with somebody that I'm not talking about. I just wanted to put that out there, guys. I know that this isn't like the life and loves of Ted Binion. And I can't talk about exactly everything, but it's like, gosh, that's so much of a life, the people that you share a child with. But I feel like that's happened a few times with our cases, to be honest, where there's been like people, you know, who have stood by their partner for decades and we don't end up having, you don't end up having the ability or time or research to be able to cover it. The spotlight's on something else. It is. And it's hard for me as like somebody who lives a life and knows (laughs) how other people live their lives and what how meaningful those years are and what context I think Doris could have maybe shared, which very understandably, she does not want to be in the spotlight. Yeah, well, that's another thing is there's probably a reason why you couldn't find out more about their story, too. Yeah, everything we know about these issues come from their divorce, which are yeah filed legally. So they are part of the public domain. 
And that's how a lot of people got this information. I don't believe Doris has publicly spoken about any of this. So it did not take long after Doris and Bonnie moved out for Ted to move Sandy into the 8,000 square foot estate. I think it was only a matter of days. Big old place. It was a big old place. So it was valued in 1998 at just about a million dollars, which I think is more like $2 million in today's money. Yeah, but Las Vegas real estate has increased exponentially. So, And it's interesting too. I probably should have looked up the exact location because real estate inflation has outpaced currency inflation. Yeah. So it could be worth a lot more in today's money. They became a very legit couple. I mean, settled down together type of couple. Sandy referred to herself as Ted's wife, though she really never legally was. They went to Sandy's parents' house for Christmas because I guess his daughter would come, I think, for Thanksgiving and then she was with her mother for Christmas. So they would go to California and spend the holidays there together. They adopted three dogs together. They frequently visited Ted's 60-acre Parump Ranch, which makes me want to say Parumpapumpum. <laughs> Even you're seasonal. I know. I'm already getting It's only September. It's still it's right. 80 degrees outside. I posted an ornament today on Ruku, <laughs> so I'm, I'm right there with you. Yes. <laughs> I'm ready. So his ranch in Parump, where he taught her to ride horses, he bought her a Mercedes. He apparently... Bought her some plastic surgery. She got some nice breast implants. He also gave her a credit card with a $10,000 monthly limit. And he didn't care what she spent it on, even though all of her living expenses were completely taken care of before that $10,000 card. So that's just for shopping and drinking and having a good time. Wow. Yeah, I cannot imagine that. No. Many believed that Sandy had come to Vegas and she had hit the jackpot. But the romance was not smooth sailing. Sandy alleged that Ted beat her as he had abused Doris before her. The difference was in this case, and it seemed like from both accounts, from both Sandy and Ted, was that Sandy hit back. Yeah, I mean... She seems spicy enough where she would. Yep. In a deposition, which was actually for the Binion's divorce, Sandy said the following, which came back to bite her in the ass for her own legal issues later. But she said that she had gotten into a fight with Ted over Bonnie, Ted's daughter. I was very angry with Bonnie, Sandy testified in this deposition, and I have a hot temper at times. They had gotten into some sort of physical altercation. She was being rude to, I think, his daughter, and he might have pushed her. I shoved him back, and he almost fell over the coffee table, and he grabbed onto me so he wouldn't fall. And then I had an attitude at this point. I grabbed his hair to pull him down, to sit down, you know? I was mad. Sometimes everybody loses their temper. I'm not perfect. I do have an aggressive temper. So she ended up running to Becky, his sisters. Now, Becky's married name was Benin, so she was technically Becky Binion Benin. Whoa. Yeah. And so she lived nearby. So Sandy goes to his sister's house and, according to the testimony, locked herself in the restroom and called 911, telling the police that Ted had assaulted her. She requested the police help her remove her belongings from his house. Two officers were dispatched and met Sandy at Ted's house as security. As she was moving out, Ted returned and they seemed to make up. 
But in family court, when they're going through this divorce, officially he's divorcing Doris, she said under oath that she had lied about the assault. Okay. We don't know, though, if she had or if she was trying to help him in the divorce at that point. So now she was lying about lying. It's all very murky gray area with this couple. And there's probably a lot of drinking and drug use and... Lots of drinking and drug use going on. Ted's gardener did say that... So he had a gardener and a maid that were there quite a bit at the house. And the gardener said especially that he noticed the couple fighting terribly. He later testified that Ted beat Sandy, quote, quite a bit. And that Ted had once joked with him about how Sandy put up a good fight herself. So everyone's talking about how Sandy just netted this guy and she's so lucky, but this is not a healthy relationship by any means. And of course, Sandy wasn't so innocent either. Becky, Ted's sister, said that Sandy had once threatened to blow her head off with a shotgun. And there were lots of whispers about whether or not Sandy was actually faithful to Ted. Okay. I don't know if she had other lovers, but we will find out later that there was at least one other guy that she ended up with during her time with Ted. Now, the gardener also said that Sandy seemed frustrated with Ted. She wasn't happy in their relationship. She mentioned that they were no longer physically intimate to him and that she was a young woman who wanted to still have sex in her life. And a lot of that was due to the fact that he was not in a great place in his life. He was losing control of the casino to his sister. He was losing his gaming license. That happened while they were together. And he was sliding even deeper into heroin. That's not great for any relationship. She did detail situations in which, and this is going to be a slightly graphic if you want to skip forward, about the realities of living with somebody who's a hardcore heroin user, which is vomit and people losing their bowels and not being able to get up and a lot of sickness involved in this. And that was kind of what you said, Andy, is like, he could afford to at least stay on it. And that was the problem is he wanted to get off it. You can get very, very, very ill if you've been on dope for a very long time and you tried to get off of it. So all of these things together meant that she was basically being a nurse to him in some ways, or at least this is how she portrays the relationship. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. So she is telling people that... It's not as physical. It's not as exciting as it once was. And she is the one who's trying to get him off drugs and she's trying to help him. And she's the one who's there every day with him, cleaning up the messes and being there. And it seems like at some point she got tired of being that, even if she did love him. At this point, he had also introduced her to a, a brand new friend of his. A guy in his early 30s, a guy named Rick Tabish. Oh, Rick. Oh, Rick. So we're going to talk about how Rick got into this picture and how he found himself vault deep in a pile of silver. Let me guess, at the strip club. <laughs> no, no, but at a, at a restaurant in Vegas, which actually I'll just jump ahead to how Rick met Ted first. So it's on every reenactment of this, and it's in the 
the ridiculous Lifetime movie, they met in a bathroom. And I guess they said they met like at the urinals, but every reenactment has these two men peeing like at urinals and then handshaking. I was like, that cannot happen. Nobody does that. I asked Nathaniel. I was like, that seems to me against all codes of having a penis and being clean. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't seem sanitary at all. No, that you would shake somebody's hands while the other one's shaking it off. No. Yes, I was like, that cannot be true. But they evidently met in the bathroom of some fancy upscale Las Vegas restaurant. They hit it off and they became friends. So who the hell is this guy? Rick Tabish was the son of a wealthy Montana man who owned and operated a petroleum distribution company. Sounds right. He sounds like a Montana man. He's a Montana man who's got some oil money. So he was smart. He was considered extremely charming. It makes sense why these two men would be drawn to each other. They are both described the same way, kind of lawless, kind of out of the bounds of normal society, wealthy parents, somebody who's trying to make their own way in the world and kept finding themselves in trouble. That's what it sounds like Rick Tabish was as well. When he was 20 years old, he was convicted of stealing a $600,000 painting from the home of a family friend. Two years later, he was charged with aggravated assault after a road rage incident grew ugly. What do you mean grew ugly? Like shootings? No, no, no. It was like literally, I think he was on his motorcycle or something and or the other guy was on his motorcycle and somebody cut somebody off and they stopped at a light and he literally like got out and like ripped the guy off of his motorcycle or out of his window and started beating him up. Wow. Okay. Yes. So not even guns. It's just full on fists of fury here. Yeah. Around the same time, he was also caught with two other guys shipping a quarter pound of cocaine from Arizona to Montana. Okay. So Rick, it seems like, was a lot of trouble. He was also charming, likable, and his parents had money. So he mostly got away with these things. A detective from his hometown of Missoula said, we brought him in a lot, but he was a likable, capable guy who made poor choices and friends. He could have been a millionaire. He has the smarts for it, but he got in with the wrong people. I got the impression that Rick was very self-motivated. This is not somebody who was just using mommy and daddy's money. He wanted to make his own money, and I believe he's a very hard worker in general. I think that as a young person trying to get out from under his parents' shadow and make his own way in the world, he maybe took some shortcuts he shouldn't have. Okay. That was the impression that I got. But he was so charming and likable that he got out of a lot of scraps that normal people would not. I did not get the impression that it was only because his parents had money. I thought it was genuinely he seemed to have something about him that people wanted to like or wanted to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, he's entrepreneurial, though. He started a number of small businesses throughout the 80s and 90s. And during this time, he ended up starting a company. And I think that there was a company he worked for, or a company he was competitive with. And that owner's daughter was a woman named Mary Jo, who he ended up marrying and having kids with. Okay. Yep. So Gary King wrote that though Rick was always characterized as a hard worker and an entrepreneur... He seemed also to always have businesses that had cash flow problems. Okay. Yep. So he left Mary Jo in Montana with the kids. 
it almost sounds like 1800s. It's like, I'm going to go strike it rich in Las Vegas and you stay here with the kids and I'll send for you. Yeah. When it's time. And narrator says, it was never time. She never came. (laughs) So this is another situation kind of similar to Ted's first wife that we don't really know entirely the story of what was going on between Mary Jo and Rick. But suffice to say, she was in Montana raising the children and Rick's fucking about in Las Vegas. Yeah. So he started yet another business in Las Vegas, taking out some hefty bank loans to do so. He set up a transportation and construction or like kind of contracting business. Okay. And it did seem like things were going well. At least that was the opinion in Las Vegas. He made contacts very easily. People spoke very highly of him. It seemed like if he was hired, he did show up and he did the work and he did it well. One person that he made contact with was, of course, Ted Binion in the urinals having a questionable handshake. (laughs) Very questionable. Very questionable. At the time, Ted was getting ousted from his casino. So this was around the time he was losing his license and they were kicking him out of his casino. He wasn't even allowed to be on the gaming floor. Oh, wow. Okay. Because of losing his license and his criminal associations. Okay. And his dad had passed away already. Yeah, I think his dad had just passed away. And so the family was in a bit of turmoil. There's only, I think, three remaining Binions at this point, maybe three or four. And it seems like the big battle was between him and his sister, Becky. She had taken over the business. And Becky gets a bad rap, too, because she was just trying to protect her family's assets in a lot of this. And, of course, her brother's memory. So they had something going on, too, which is like when all of this went down, which we will be talking about, people are always like, well, look at Becky, too, because if Ted's out of the way, she has more equity to gain, essentially, and power in the family business. But I do think she genuinely loved and cared for her brother. I think that she just wanted him to straighten out so he could help her run the family business. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's the general feeling that I got from the situation. So at this time, though, because he wasn't allowed in the casino, essentially, he also had to remove his silver from the casino's vault. I see where this is going. Yes. He had something like they said, six literal, literal tons, six tons of silver bullion. He had horseshoe casino chips. He had cash, so paper cash as well. And he had more than 100,000 rare coins in his hoard. They called it the Binion Hoard. Wow. Yes. And I saw different numbers. Somebody said that the rare coin collection alone was worth over $7 million. Oh my God. Yes. Where I also saw other accounts that put this hoard's entire amount at seven to 14. Okay. Nobody knows for sure because I don't think every single piece of it has ever been accounted for again, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Just an estimation, a guesstimation. Yeah. So he had to do something with all of this crazy heavy amount of silver that he had. And he had some crazy ideas too. He wanted to bury it like right on the strip because he's like, no one could ever dig it up because... There's people all around. Yeah, but how would you bury that in the first place? Yeah. 
Well, he decided that he wanted to build an underground vault at his Pahrump ranch. And that was where he was going to store his silver. But this was not unusual for Ted to want to bury his treasure. In fact, there are crazy stories. He had the Pahrump ranch. He also had obviously his estate in Vegas. And he also had, I think, a portion of a Montana ranch as well. And it is absolutely legendary that he would bury silver and money and treasure just places. And he was so frequently under the influence that it's possible that there are still, (laughs) there is still tons of treasure buried out on any number of his properties. Wild. Yeah. Apparently some people still like bring out metal detectors and are trying to like on the edges of his property looking for the treasure because it is not all $50 million is definitely not accounted for. I'll tell you that much. Oh my God. So he ended up hiring Rick Tabish to build this vault, this underground vault for him, which meant that only Rick and Ted knew the combination. So throughout this process of meeting Rick, having a great time with him, then I guess independently when he was looking to build this vault, he had also heard about Rick and he's like, wait a minute, I already know that guy. They vibed really well. Now they're building this whole process. So of course they have to be talking about how they're going to build it, what they're going to do, what specs he wants. They became extremely good friends. They were vibing. So of course... He gets introduced to Sandy. The three of them start hanging out. They were frequently seen out together. Rick was a frequent visitor to their home. Seems like one thing led to another. And when Ted was sick from drugs, when he had overindulged, and it didn't sound like Rick and Sandy ever indulged in heroin, but he did make some comments later, like, I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to do this. I'm going to stay away from people like that. That makes me think like it was just there was like a party and atmosphere, even if they were not also doing heroin. But just because they weren't doing heroin doesn't mean they weren't doing other drugs. Exactly. That's what like it was never explicitly stated if or not. Yeah. Like there's so many people who don't ever do heroin who do plenty of other drugs. I think that's a pretty normal line to draw, to be honest. I think that's totally like I'm not saying do drugs. I'm saying if especially if you're a, a young person listening to this, do not do drugs. However. If you're going to do drugs, absolutely do not do heroin. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Not even once. That's why they Hard call no. it chasing Hard the dragon. No. Yeah. So we don't really know the timeline of this. We have no idea when Rick and Sandy started getting a little friendly. But we do know that as time marched on, things between Sandy and Ted were not going great. He was retreating farther into his heroin addiction. It seemed like he had failed at an appeal to win back his gaming license, which had depressed him. She was worried about his drug use at that point. She also was complaining to the housekeeper and other people that he was getting sick all over the house. Like I said about the gardener, they were no longer physically intimate. She was not being very private about what was going on between them in those walls. And Sandy even told her manicurist, she had somebody who was her nail technician at Neiman Marcus, that she believed that soon Ted was going to die of an overdose, is what she told this woman who was her regular nail technician. Okay. 
Well, on the afternoon of September 18th, 1998, 55-year-old Ted was found dead of a suspected drug overdose. So Sandy was either a psychic or something else altogether. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Sometimes you just have one of those nights, a night where you're just about to fall asleep and your brain decides to start racing. I had that morning, to be honest. (laughs) Mine is at (laughs) night. I am a total anxiety insomniac. Oh my God. I wake up at four and my brain starts and then I just can't sleep in until six or seven. It drives me wild. Well, Andy, it turns out one of the best ways to get rid of those racing thoughts is to actually talk through them. Oh, I know. Therapy creates space to do exactly that. So you can work through your negative thought cycles and find some inner peace and calm zen. Oh man, and you know when you have little kids or a very stressful job, or both in Andy's case, inner peace and calm is very hard to come by. You know, trying to produce the best podcast possible for me, (laughs) trying to get in the fittest shape constantly. Life can be a lot. Totally. And one of the most important realities of therapy is that it's not just for people who've experienced major trauma, although it is very helpful for that, but it's for anyone who wants space to process and help learn positive coping skills. It's for managing all of the T's, the little T traumas and the big T traumas in our life. So if you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's online and designed to fit with your busy life. After filling out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if for any reason it's not a fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LoveMurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash LoveMurder. So Sandy called 911 at 3.54 p.m. and said that her husband was not breathing. She was hysterical on the phone. She could barely talk to the dispatcher. She did end up hanging up the call. When the paramedics arrived only minutes later, she was outside. She was screaming. She was waving to them. She was trying to wave them down. But the paramedics said that this isn't an unusual response. They, of course, have people who are concerned about their loved ones who are hysterical. So this, of course, seemed Totally typical. On par. Yes. So she brought them to Ted, who was found on the ground on, they said an exercise mat. So I'm assuming like kind of like a yoga mat type situation. Yeah. In his den. And they did attempt to resuscitate him, but it was clear that he had been dead for a little while at that point. There was foam on his mouth that indicated that he had overdosed, and there was also a pill bottle near his body, and the police soon arrived, and they discovered lots of heroin and heroin paraphernalia, like balloons, empty balloons, foil wrappers. They would soon find out, too, that just the previous evening, he had purchased 12 balloons of black tar heroin from his dealer. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it was Definitely Ted who purchased them. There's no question about that. Sandy told the police that Ted had been trying to kick the drugs. They had been actively working on it. And in fact, they had spoken about him going to rehab. She became so hysterical at the scene that she had to actually be taken away in an ambulance and hospitalized. The death was initially considered an accidental overdose. Those in Las Vegas knew all about Ted's substance abuse issues. They knew 
that he had purchased the heroin. The bottle of Xanax had been prescribed by a neighbor who was a doctor. He had gone to a pharmacy and gotten the Xanax. I mean, this is all on the up and up and accounted for that he was the one who requested, purchased, and procured these drugs. So this seemed, of course, tragic, but not surprising. Surprising that he had lived to 55, given his proclivities all this time. Well, according to the Clark County Coroner's Report, Ted had died sometime between the hours of 5.30 a.m. and noon of an accidental overdose of black tar heroin and Xanax. It would seem that the case was open and shut, but those close to Ted feared that the truth may be a little bit more sinister. Ted's longtime friend and estate attorney, James Brown, said that only a couple days before his death, Ted had called him and he had explicitly asked him to remove Sandy from his will. So he said he's on Blood and Money, which is so funny. I've never seen it before. It was a Peacock show and it has like the dun dun in it because it's a true crime show put on by Dick Wolf, who does Law and Order. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's actually, it was very well done, very cohesive, I would recommend. So he's on the show and he said that he called him and that basically Ted had put Sandy in his will after pressure from Sandy. She said, your sister doesn't like me. You won't marry me. I need some protection after you pass away. You're older than me and you're addicted to drugs. So yeah, as soon as you die, your sister's going to come in here with a lawyer and kick me out of the only home I've had for the last three years, which on her side, I totally understand. So he did go to his attorney and he said that his daughter was to receive everything of his estate except for the home he shared with Sandy, the cars that they shared, the dogs that they shared, and anything within the home. So the artwork, the furniture, and all of the random silver and cash that he kept in a safe at his house. That all goes to Sandy. Okay. But his daughter gets everything else. Well, he called James Brown and he said, I want her out of the will. She's done. I want her out. And he goes, that is if she doesn't kill me tonight. But if I'm dead, you'll know what happened. Uh, And that was two days before uh, he was found dead of an overdose. And he didn't tell him anything else. No. And now, again, Ted was prone to taking people in and out of his will at whim. He was known to being this like crazy generous guy. That would literally be like to a bellhop, like, I'm putting you in my will. And then he would. That's amazing. Yeah, he would. He would actually do something like that. But just as easily as they went in, they could come out. (laughs) So I'm not sure if this meant anything to his attorney and very close friend. This guy is on Blood and Money and he talks about knowing him since he was 16 years old. They were very close. I do not know if this meant anything in the moment or it meant something afterwards. Yeah. And more than that, his sister Becky was absolutely sure that this was not an overdose. She went to the media. She's saying, please treat this as a homicide. She went to the authorities. She begged them to treat it as a homicide. She said, my brother has been a drug user since he was a teenager. He has always walked the line perfectly. He knows exactly how much he can take, what he can do. This guy has lived this long as a heroin user 
he was not depressed, which was something that Sandy was telling the police that he was depressed and he no longer had anything to live for. She said even though this recent appeal had failed, he was still talking to Becky about what they were going to do and how he was going to get his gaming license back. And she said that he was very optimistic about that. And also, he was going to kick Sandy out. So he did not extrapolate to either his friend James, his estate attorney, or his sister what was going on in the relationship that was so bad that he was ready to end it. But I'm also sure that neither of them realized how bad it truly was because it sounds like they were always fighting. Yeah. Because think about it, that time that she talks about at the beginning of their relationship, when he's in his divorce proceedings, she ran to the sister's house. Yeah. So I think that now they're looking at this with hindsight as 2020 being like, wow, these are all the signs, but we're just letting you know things were not well here. And it's not what Sandy's telling you and that this should be treated like a suspicious death. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sandy, who was so hysterical at the loss of her lover, had had a full recovery from her episode and she showed up with a lawyer at the house and started fighting with James Brown, Ted's attorney, because James Brown is saying, Ted didn't want you here. He was kicking you out of the will. And her lawyer is saying, well, you never filed any papers and a phone call doesn't count. So she gets the house. It's still in the official will. They start fighting about it. And James Brown is like, okay, I'm going to go get a court order to keep you out of this house because he is concerned that she's going to go in and steal everything. And from Sandy's perspective, she thinks that Becky and her attorneys are going to come in and ransack the house of her belongings. So at that point, Sandy's attorney says, I'm going to go in and we're going to take a videotape of everything that's in the house, the everything that rightfully belongs to Sandy. Now, this is less than 24 hours after she had this episode and all of a sudden she's fully recovered and getting in there and fighting and ready to claim her inheritance. And so James Brown says, that's fine. You have to give me a copy. You go ahead. You take the video camera all around that house, but you have to send us a copy of everything so we see what's in the house too. So she can't take any shit out in case the courts eventually rule that it goes to the minions. So we have this video. This video ends up going into evidence later on. So therefore, it's on the dateline. It's on the blood and money. And she looks completely recovered. She's walking around pointing out the things that belong to her. She's like talking about this like vase and this artwork like, oh, the Luther Gunter. I have to take the Vargas. Like she's going around being like in this and that and the other thing of all the things that she wants that belongs to her. She's also saying that she thinks people were already in the house and taking things. She's like, well, he had $20,000 that seems to go missing. So where is that? It's like she's fired up. She's angry. She's run around this house. She does say at one point, she says, well, that safe's empty. This becomes a point of contention later because there were still imprints of what looked like silver bricks on the bottom of the safe that the weight had recently been lifted, yeah. it looked like. Yeah. And so where did that money go? Everyone knew he had a ton of silver in that safe. And it seemed like she lived in the house. She probably knew the combination. And the safe is closed when she walks by and she says, well, that safe's empty. How did she know it was empty? Babe. Yeah, she's taking this video to help herself out so she can get all this stuff. But it's incriminating her. It's actually incriminating her. 
And it gets even worse because at some point you see her walk through this kitchen and she very sketchily kind of surreptitiously walks by this wine glass and puts it in her purse. Why? Empty? It's an empty wine glass and she just walks by and puts it in her purse and walks away. And it looks like she's trying to hide it even from the camera. Yeah. But it's picked up on the camera. And they sent this video to the other attorneys. So why would she do this? Why would she hide that? Well, the coroner had determined that Ted had died of an overdose. There was also Valium in his system. So this is a very intense and lethal combination. So the wine glass had Valium in it. Well, we don't know because we never found the wine glass. No. Mm-hmm. They found something when they did the autopsy. Obviously, there was Xanax in the lethal range. There was morphine, which is how heroin breaks down. It breaks down into morphine in your body in the toxic range. And there was a little bit of Valium as well. But they found 40 milliliters of this gray-brown fluid in Ted's stomach. He did not have any food in his stomach, but he had this gray-brown fluid that was testing positive for heroin, essentially. Everyone who knew Ted knew that he smoked his heroin. He was afraid of needles. He didn't inject it. So he smoked heroin, but he certainly didn't ingest it. So it didn't make any sense that it would be in his stomach. Yeah. Which the detective on Blood and Money says that any heroin user knows that eating heroin is a waste of heroin. That's not how you're going to get the high you want. No, it doesn't do anything. It would just go in your stomach. But would that cause an overdose? I mean, he could have also been smoking it. I don't know. It's interesting because the morphine was only in the toxic range. The Xanax was in the lethal range. Wow. Okay. So it's like the combination of everything. It was the combination. But the reason why that's curious, especially given the wine glass, is that maybe Rick and Sandy wouldn't know that it's not going to hit you as hard in your stomach. So they begin formulating a theory that Sandy didn't know that you don't ingest heroin if you're a heroin user, and that maybe she made a lethal cocktail in a wine glass of Xanax and heroin and had him drink it. Yeah. That's what they're thinking, because why else would a 20-year-plus heroin user ingest heroin? It didn't make any sense to them. Then with her grabbing this wine glass, they're like, maybe that was the glass. And she could never give it back to them. So clearly she'd gotten rid of it. Yeah. Smash that shit. So that's what they're thinking these days. Something is is fishy. However, at the end of the day, like I said, they interviewed everyone who helped him procure the drugs. They talked to a neighbor who saw him go get his newspaper very early in the morning. I think it was around five in the morning. This guy seemed like he was doing all of these drugs on his own cognition, by his own choice. It's weird that he might have ingested them, but we know he was the one who was choosing to do these drugs. I really do not think that they would have had much of a case if not for some some mistakes that happened by some people later on. Number one... That less than 48 hours after Ted dies, 
all of a sudden, the Nye County Sheriff's Department finds Rick Tabish trying to steal all of Ted's silver from the vault. Yeah. Which, by the way, after he said I lied, he tried to say that he was business partners with Ted and that Ted had asked him to remove all of the silver so that his family couldn't get their hands on it and he could keep it safe for Ted's daughter. (laughs) That was... Not documented anywhere. Night in shining silver coins. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Mm -hmm. You weren't taking a little off the top for yourself. You were going to throw her like a million dollars and keep like the other 14 for yourself. So when that happens, people are like, wait a minute. That's really strange. Why was his contractor trying to steal all his silver? Okay, so maybe that could make sense. He finds out about the death. He knows where all the silver is. He's thinking, I had all these conversations with him and he doesn't totally love his family. He doesn't trust them. Nobody's going to know how much silver is in there. So why don't I just go and take a bunch? I'll take almost all of it and they won't know. So that could make sense. But what doesn't make sense is what happens next, which is that he gets arrested, obviously. And the person who pays his bond is Sandy Murphy. And that in order to do so, she has to take all of the cash that she has and sell her Mercedes little two-seater to get her boyfriend out of jail. Now, if you did not know that there was an affair happening, you would go, why in the flying fuckaroo is his live-in girlfriend bailing out his contractor friend who was stealing millions of dollars of silver from him. Yep. I was telling this case to Nathaniel. He's like, that's if like I died. And then we found out the contractor who did our basement project (laughs) was trying to steal money from my safe. And then you bailed him out. Yeah, that's the strangest shit ever. If you put it in a context like that, it's very weird. So of course, Becky's like, Okay, y'all fucking, something's going on. This doesn't make any sense. This was all a mistake. First of all, they could have gotten away with murder. Potentially, we still haven't determined whether a murder actually happened here. But they could have gotten away with whatever they were getting away with, at least the house for Sandy, if Rick hadn't tried to steal all the silver and then stupid ass Sandy didn't bail him out. Yeah, multiple levels of stupidity. (laughs) Multiple levels of stupidity here. So clearly, these two are in cahoots. If they're not just boning, they're definitely involved in his death, is what Becky is thinking. And she has the moolah to get a private investigator. So she already told the cops this. She's like, this is what I know what's going on. I'm going to the media too. But if you can't legally do the things I need you to do to prove this, I'm going to get a private investigator who, this guy was a very famous one too. This guy was named Tom Dillard to dig up dirt on these two. Well, Tom Dillard dug up quite a bit of dirt on these two, almost as much as Rick was digging up in the desert. So Sandy, by the time that she bailed Rick out, was not allowed to get in the house while it was under contention of who actually owned it at that point. So she was living with Rick and Henderson. So that was the first thing that they said. They're shacking up together. He's not living with his wife. She's not living with a girlfriend or moving back with her family in California. She's living with Rick right now. Number two, the maid and the gardener said that the two had been carrying on together 
and they suspected an affair had been going on for months. Number three, the detective found evidence that Sandy had booked a romantic getaway to the Beverly Hills Hotel for a Mr. and Mrs. Tabish. Stop. Mm -hmm. S.M. Tabish. So Sandy Murphy Tabish had booked the tickets. She had also requested that a fancy bottle of red wine, a Barbaresco, be waiting in the room with two dozen long-stemmed roses. So she also requested a jacuzzi in the room. And the woman who checked them in remembered them. Now, Sandy's family tried to say that that's not possible because she was actually with her family in Bellflower at her nephew's birthday that weekend. But babes, it's not that far from Beverly Hills. Long Beach is like 20 minutes from Beverly Hills. Like, guys, come on. A little rendezvous at the Beverly Hills Hotel after being in Long Beach for your nephew's party or whatever is sounds about right. Her sister-in-law was like, well, I saw her luggage there and then I saw her in the morning. It's like, uh-huh, okay. You're not convincing me she had a alibi. I think what the real Mrs. Tavish would have been surprised about and the real Mr. Sandy Murphy, Mr. Ted Binion, who was paying the bills, was the fact that she was using the credit card that Ted gave her to pay for all of this. Obviously. (laughs) Not even trying. Not even, like, taking some cash out and then paying for the dirty, like, hookup hotel. No, egregious. Egregious to just charge it to the card? Come on. So the PI teamed up with the police at this point. He's like, here's all my evidence. Let's go after these guys. And they also discovered that Sandy had called Rick seven minutes before she had called 911. And furthermore, she had said basically that he was on a tear. He was doing all this heroin. He was up all night. He thought he was going to have a stroke. So he asked her to stay up with him. She tried to stay up with him. He was getting sick. It was not great. He had gone out for a little while. He had come back. She had passed out at some point. And at some point she woke up and he was in bed with her. And then she had gotten up to run some errands and go out to lunch with a friend. Then she had come home. She had locked herself out. So she had climbed in a window and she found him right before 4 p.m. What she didn't say was that the friend she had gone to lunch with was Rick. And it seems like seven minutes before she called 911, she had come into the house, called Rick and then waited seven minutes before she called 911, which is when they believe she and Rick had potentially poisoned him or fed him this drink and were essentially waiting for him to die. They had gone out to try to establish an alibi. Then she had come home, said, oh my God, he's actually dead. They had called each other. I'm not sure. One account said that she called him, another account said that it was incoming from Rick. But either way, they had talked for one minute and then a full seven minutes went by before she called 911, which leads the authorities to believe that she was cleaning up the scene before she called 911. The police theorized that Ted had found out about the affair. They think that's why he tried to write Sandy out of the will and why his sister Becky believed he was ending his relationship for good and allegedly kicking Sandy out of the house. Sandy had, they think, gotten used to the high life. She knew that she would not just be losing this mansion, this great house. 
she would be losing all the things associated with this house. The cars, the art, the silver, the cash that he had stashed all around this place. So they were thinking that she knew that it was coming, that he was going to kick her out. And she knew the writing was on the wall and she had a very small chance to get in while the getting was good. And if she's banging Rick, he knows where all the silver is. So this is not even double your money. This is quadruple, way more your money. (laughs) Quintuple your money. More than that. This is, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck with their forces combined. They just need to kill him before he writes Sandy out of the will. But it's a little too late. Well, that's the thing. So this is, I have a whole different theory about this I'm going to talk about at the end. And I don't think it's whole different. I think a lot of people feel the same way that I do. But the police theorized that Sandy knew that he had procured both Xanax and heroin recently. And everyone, of course, knew he had an issue with drugs. So they think that Rick and Sandy planned to murder him this way using the drugs he had already purchased because no one was going to think twice about it. So with all of this evidence presented to the coroner, the coroner said that the type of death, which had previously been undetermined, was a homicide. So he still died, they believe, of an overdose, but they now think it was a homicide. It wasn't the drugs that killed him. It was someone else doing feeding the drugs to him. And we're going to talk about it in the trial that we're going to talk about. There's also some expert medical examiners who believe that it might have been even more than just the drugs. Okay. And shortly thereafter, the larcenous lovers, Rick and Sandy, were indicted by a grand jury and they were subsequently arrested. I guess they were found in a Henderson area grocery store. They did not seem that surprised when they were arrested. Yeah. Were they using silver to check out? (laughs) I guess that Rick did pay for some portion of his legal bills with some part of silver, which made Becky very upset, of course. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. She's like, that's my brother's money. Yes. While Sandy was out on bail, she was under house arrest. And she pissed off the judge by not taking this very seriously. Apparently, there was a couple hearings, pre-trial hearings, where she had at one point said, I'm going to meet my lawyer so she can leave house arrest. But really, she went shopping. And then she was also painting her house arrest ankle monitor to match her outfits. Was she like bedazzling it? (laughs) I wish she was bedazzling. I think she was just painting it. And finally, the judge was like, stop it. You can't do that. You have to just make it black. Just make it black. To match her outfits. Dead. She was not doing a great job of convincing everyone that she was a woman in mourning here. So finally, the trial kicked off and the prosecution... And and by the way, Rick and Sandy were tried together. Okay. Yeah, which usually they separate them to make the cases easier. In this case, they were being tried together. The prosecution argued that Ted Binion had been murdered for lust and greed And the clip I saw, the prosecutor said, by someone he loved and trusted and her new partner. But I think that's two people he loved and trusted because he trusted Rick as well. He did a dick handshake with him. (laughs) You know? He dick shaked Rick. (laughs) You don't just do that with anyone. I hope not. I really hope you don't. Though the case was very circumstantial, the prosecution leaned into the motive. 
So they're having an affair. Ted was taking Sandy out of the will. By the way, Rick Tabish was nearly $1 million in debt. He owed $337,000 to the IRS. And then he owed something like $600,000 in upcoming bank loan payments and what he owed for the equipment he had purchased to start his new business. The defense argued that there was no murder. They said calling this a homicide and this being a homicide trial is a joke. Ted was known to do drugs. He had purchased the drugs. There's no forensic evidence that anyone forced him to do these drugs other than there's some drugs found in his stomach. Well, show me that either Rick or Sandy forced him to do that. There's no evidence that they did any of that. They also said that everything that the prosecution is bringing up, like his girlfriend was cheating on him. He had just lost his license. Things were not going well. They're like, yeah, that's all reasons to do drugs or maybe even kill yourself. Yeah. So it's like everything that you guys are saying, you're saying like, yeah, we're admitting because they admitted at the trial that they had an affair. You're saying like, oh, well, that was the reason. It's like, yeah, maybe he found out about it and he was super depressed about it. And he either accidentally overdosed or intentionally overdosed. But you don't have any hard proof. There's just too much reasonable doubt in this case, which I agree. It is not a stretch given that everyone agrees that he was the one who purchased these drugs, that he was the one who took them. However, the prosecution presented a few very convincing witnesses that did support their theory. Number one, a friend of Rick's from Montana, who is an ex-Army Ranger, testified that Rick had asked him to kill a casino owner who owed him money and that he would pay him for that. He claimed that they discussed maybe murdering this guy with a lethal combination of Xanax and heroin. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This guy, who was named Stephen Grantzer, said that he called a friend of his who was a Montana pharmacist to ask how much Xanax one would have to take to die. The Montana pharmacist confirmed that this conversation did occur. However, wow. yeah, this guy does not seem the most trustworthy. The pharmacist or the guy? The guy, Steve. I was trying to Google more information about this because some things change about testimony. And it was between all my sources, it was kind of murky. So I was trying to get more information. So I was Googling him specifically. And I found out that he was arrested for his sixth DUI in like 2011 or something. And how can he still drive? I do not know. I mean... He was probably driving without a license at that point. You can still get a driving under the influence without having a license. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. And he was also arrested for beating his girlfriend. Oh. Like, what skin does he have in the game if, like, he doesn't tell the truth? Like, you know what I mean? The Lifetime movie (laughs) suggests... Oh, credible source. (laughs) Suggests something. So I'm not saying anything about that right now. This is what the jury is hearing. So we have to talk about like what the jury is hearing. Yeah. Yeah. They're hearing this. I don't think they knew about his DUIs and beating his girlfriend. In fact, the six DUI and the beating of his girlfriend hadn't even happened yet at this trial. But he was not. It's clear that this guy doesn't have substance, but the jury doesn't know this. They're just hearing him talk about it. And he's on Blood and Money. There's a clip of him talking about this. And he seems believable. When you hear that, you think, oh, shit. Yes, they must have planned this. He said that he said no 
to killing this guy. He said, I couldn't figure out how to make it happen. I wasn't going to do it. I'm not going to get paid to kill somebody. But yes, we had this conversation. Also, the manicurist who had been told days before Ted's death that he was going to OD testified that Sandy was not broken up about it. She wasn't saying, oh my God, I'm so upset. I feel like my baby is going to OD and I'm so worried. She was saying it matter-of-factly and kind of joking about it like, oh yeah, he's a fucking rack and he's going to OD, but who cares? I get $3 million. Wow. Well, that's kind of like flagrant. Flagrant. And that it wasn't being upset. She said that she was almost like acting like it was funny. And the prosecutor was like, did you think it was funny? And she was like, no, I didn't. Mm. Well, your manicurist has a different story. Well, no, the manicurist was like, I didn't think it was funny because she was like, well, how was she saying it? And she was like, like, it was funny. And he's like, did you think it was funny? And she's like, no, 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 no one would think that's funny. No sane person. Yeah. The witness that seemed to resonate the most with the jurors was the attorney, James Brown, who told them he tried to take her out of the will. And he said, if she doesn't kill me tonight, but if she does, you know what happened. And juror number six was actually on the show. I think he was on maybe Dateline too. And he said that that was actually very profound. It felt like Ted was speaking beyond the grave, that you were hearing something that he was really thinking and warning people about. They also had the high-profile medical examiner, Michael, I always call him Michael Baden, but people on this episode called him Michael Baden, so it might be Baden. But he's the one I told you about who was like HBO's autopsy. He's kind of famous. He was in the O.J. Simpson trial too. Okay. Yeah, you would recognize him if you saw him. So he's a very frequent flyer, a well-paid, basically expert witness. And Becky, Becky Bannon, was the one who paid for his testimony. And he said that it was not just the drugs. Obviously, so much drugs in his system at a lethal dose would be an obvious answer for why he had died. But Michael Baden or Baden believed that actually Sandy and Ted had not only just drugged him, that they had killed him by a suffocation technique called burking. This is named after a guy who, with a partner, killed a bunch of people and sold their bodies in, I think, 1800s England. He said that after intoxicating Ted, he believed that they had suffocated him by having essentially one person sit on his chest to hold him down, and then the other person closes their mouth and pinches the nose. Wow. And you can't tell? Well, remember we've talked about suffocation cases that you just can't tell, especially if something like that amount of drugs are in their system. Like about how hard it is to tell smothering deaths. I mean, that's essentially smothering. Yes. And so he said that he could tell that this had happened because there was two bruises on Ted's chest that he believes corresponded with the buttons on Ted's shirt. So the weight of somebody sitting on his chest had created bruising there. Wow. This was very compelling to the jury as well. If I'm the jury, I am wowed. Yes. The defense's expert witness, Cyril Wecht, however, countered that there was no way that that was possible because of something around the eyes. It was that, this sounds very technical, so I can't totally explain it to you guys, that the congestion under Ted's eyelids was linear and not circular, and therefore it was not consistent with suffocation. So that's what the defense's witnesses say, trying to say. Yeah. 
And he was also trying to say that the bruises on Ted's chest were actually the result of the EMTs trying to resuscitate him, which we know happens when they're performing CPR. So they're both sounding really good, although Michael Baden's the famous one. Nine weeks of trial concluded, and the jury spent four full days deliberating. And this was apparently a very, very, very hard process. I mean, everyone on this jury asked that they never be selected for a jury ever again. There was people crying. Can you request that? I don't know. It was in the book. I'm like, I would too. But they said it was unbelievably difficult. There was fighting. It was almost a a hung jury, I think. They were trying to parse through lots of gray areas in this case. And when they came to finally deliver the verdict, I think there was like three or four jurors who asked if they could wear sunglasses. Now, later, the defense would say, They didn't want to look at the defendants. It was more, they said, because they had been crying so hard that they didn't want anyone to see their eyes. I mean, it could be either thing. Like, and I think that both are just, to be honest. Like, you have to deliberate this crazy verdict. And you're also potentially, if they're innocent, I mean, they're guilty of being scumbags for sure, but they're innocent of a murder and you're potentially throwing them away for life without parole. That's a huge responsibility. So what do you think they said? I think they had said guilty. I mean, given that they felt so bad, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. So they did. They were found guilty on all charges. And I think the evidence is pretty damning, too. The evidence, it's circumstantial, but it's damning. If he didn't get caught siphoning the silver, I think it would be a totally different story, to be honest. Like, Because then she wouldn't have bailed them out. There wouldn't be all of these crazy connections or coincidences as to why these two were in cahoots. Like, it seems like there's just too much lining up to make them guilty, to be honest. Yes, but, Andy, the story is not over. Oh, God. Not even remotely. Do they appeal? Yes. Well, prior to her trial, Sandy met another wealthy older gentleman, and this guy was named Bill Fuller. He was an Irish multimillionaire who was actually Irish from Ireland. (laughs) I guess he had gained his wealth from managing rock bands, bringing them to Vegas, and also owning a bunch of popular ballrooms and hotels and even castles in Ireland. So we don't know exactly how they met. This trip club. They said that they met at a restaurant while she was out on bail, but then he later said that that wasn't true. And in fact... He had seen her on television and thought she was innocent, and he reached out to help her. And then he also told an Irish TV channel that his attorney, who was named Murphy, was a distant relative of Sandy's, and he wanted to help her out. So there's a lot of conversation about why he got involved in this case. And it could be none of those reasons. It could be none of those reasons. And also, I can tell you everyone thought they were banging I don't know. I really don't know. This guy had also bailed out Irish political activists. So they both said that they were platonic. They were just very good friends. He just wanted to help her out. He told this Irish, I don't know if it was a TV channel or newspaper, that he was just helping her get out of jail because he believed that she was innocent. And then after that, she was on her own. Like he wasn't trying to set her up to be his mistress. He was pretty old. But if this was a friend, just a platonic friend, this is a platonic friend we all need because he paid, I think, over a million dollars in our time money and 2023 money between 
paying her bond, paying for her legal bills, and even setting her up in an apartment, which was apparently a very fancy condominium in a ritzy Las Vegas country club, which I can only imagine how pissed off those neighbors were. Oh, my God. <laughs> this like, woman, are you fucking kidding? This woman out for bail for killing, killing her, her casino hus- husband, not even, boyfriend is living among them, rubbing shoulders, playing tennis, going to the club. So with Bill Fuller's support, and I'm sure Rick's very extremely wealthy parents, both parties actually fired their attorneys and they hired very new fancy pants lawyers. They appealed and they were granted a new trial. The primary reason was because the judge had let in the hearsay statement by Ted's lawyer and friend, James Brown. He shouldn't have been able to tell them that Ted said that he thought she was going to kill him. That constitutes his hearsay. Why? Because Ted wasn't there to say it. He's saying something that somebody else said, and it's not considered a dying declaration because he wasn't in any danger at that time. How was he not in any danger at that time? Because she wasn't like standing over him with a knife and he wasn't like actively dying. It was like two days before he died. Yeah, but isn't a murder plot the same thing? I don't know. You'd have to take it up with the legal system, Andrea. I know. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I just think that that definitely should qualify. If I called you and I was like, I'm very worried that my husband is going to murder me. And then two days later, I was dead. You don't think that that should be entered as some form of testimony? No, I think it should. I think now knowing what I have, I'd be like, please get your ass down to a notary public (laughs) and get it on the record that you believe. I'm sure that would be first on my mind when I'm worried about my spouse killing me. Is going to find a notary. You should find somebody to put it on the record so that it's not hearsay. Or I think you can record yourself. Maybe just do that. Record yourself and send it to me. I mean, I'm not worried about it. I'm just saying. Like, (laughs) I know this is just good for anyone who's worried. We should be walking through this for sure. Wow. Okay. So that's not going to be allowed in this second trial. The second trial kicked off on October 11th, 2004. And I got to say, I kind of love Rick Tabish's defense attorney. This guy, Tony Sarah is an absolute wild man. So he's 88 years old now, and he's on the blood and money, which I think was shot like last year. He's got like this ponytail. He wasn't even a young chicken, obviously, when this was going on in 2004. He is a well-known civil rights attorney from California. He's represented tons of people. He's got his own Wikipedia page. You guys can check it out. He is a hoot. He is both poetic and kind of a bulldog. He's the most intense attorney I have ever watched in any of these shows. So the gist of the prosecution and the defense's stories were pretty much exactly the same as the first trial. So everyone kind of expected that it was just going to go the same way. It was a new prosecutorial team, new defense team. But other than that, they're basically using the same arguments. And Becky was on the media saying, this is just a waste of taxpayer money because it's the same story. They're going to find it out the same way. It was just some legal loopholes that they were able to jump through to get another trial, which we've seen time and time again. But last time they did not have Tony Sarah. So Tony Sarah really drives it home. 
that this man had a lot of drugs in his system. He bought all of those drugs. He was known to use all of these drugs. There's absolutely zero evidence that anyone forced him to take these drugs. So, of course, you're thinking, but what about Dr. Baden? What about the Birking? What's going on? Yeah. That seems like some evidence. He was very compelling and very convincing to the original jury. Well, he comes back and Tony Sarah lights this man up on cross. He puts up a close-up picture of the so-called burking bruises. And he shows that the alleged bruises don't actually line up with the buttons of a shirt. And so Michael Baden is trying to like say like how it could have been or what happened. He's like, do you know about the button? Have you seen this button? Like, he's just, like, yelling about this button. He's like, I bet you'd like to know this button, the fantasy of this button. And so now you're like, wow, Tony Sarah's kind of a jerk. He's, like, really going in on the doctor about this button. But then he's like, I bring new evidence in. And it's a close-up of the actual marks, these, like, marks that he said were bruises. And there's nine experts that testify for the defense that they are not bruises at all. They're actually melanomas or carcinomas. I'm not sure which. They're skin cancer. So they weren't bruises. They were a result of his skin cancer. But nobody had ever blown them up to look at all of the borders and everything. So that's out. Now, the first jury had loved Dr. Baden. They had believed everything. You and I talked about it. We believed what he said. Yeah. And now the second jury is saying, well, that's skin cancer. That's not a bruise. So Birking's out. And then the other convincing guy was the guy who said, Stephen, who said that he had been asked to kill. Well, this time he's testifying and he says, I don't know, we were really more joking about it. And so the prosecutors are like, last time you said he, asked, he said he was going to pay you to kill him. And he's like, oh, no, you know, I overstated it. We were just joking. Yeah, but who jokes about that? Now, on the Lifetime movie, so I do not know the veracity of all of this, the Lifetime movie said that Becky Binion and the Binion family paid that man to say that. There's no evidence that that is the case, but that's what the Lifetime movie suggested. Wow. Yes. Now, that could be a motivation. That's possible because this guy's kind of a scumbag that if the private detective reached out to him and said, do you know anything? If you have a story, it could be worth your while. It's called a reward for information, wink, wink. It's possible. So he changed his tune. So there's that. And then furthermore, the damning phrase that meant so much to the first jury was that James Brown said, he said, if I die, it was her. And he can't say that this time. So he was allowed to say that he had called and he had asked to change his will. And that was it. So it still wasn't a runaway case by any means, but (laughs) this Tony Sarah guy, guys, you should look this up on the YouTube. He's so funny. He is like, I don't even know how to act like his performance in his closing statement. He's like, Las Vegas, those who occupy the high echelon are like royal tea. Like, that's how he's doing this. He's like, Mr. Ted Binion was a demigod. He lies, fallen on his shield. Hail Caesar! We will find him an assailant. He's basically saying that this guy died of a drug overdose and the powers that be, these money machines, these 
demigods of Vegas are creating an assailant, that this stripper can't take his money, that they have to make her the one that killed him. They can't admit that he just died because of his own actions. Yeah. But his performance is so wild. I can't even describe it. It's like operatic. (laughs) He's like yelling at some points. He's like singing almost at some points. It's wild. Also, by the way, the prosecutors are like looking down. They're like pinching their noses. They're like trying so hard not to laugh because this performance is so extra. I also looked this guy up on Wikipedia and apparently he's taken a vow of poverty and he never takes any money from any of these cases. I swear to God, he doesn't take a penny. He gives all of his money back into other attorneys and people who are helping people who are like wrongly jailed. Wow. So he has no money. In fact, like he has, so he has like five kids, but they live in like a shack and that his brother, who's actually a famous sculptor, apparently had to pay for his kids to go to college because he refuses to take any money. And he only takes enough out of his fee so that he can pay for gas. And he has like a little jalopy car. Oh my God. I know this guy is wild. He's completely wild. I mean, I still think they're guilty. Okay. So you still think they're guilty. Do you think the jury, the second jury thought they were guilty? Yeah. They did not. Oh, my God. They did not. So this time, Rick and Sandy were found not guilty of the murder. However, they were convicted of the lesser charges of guilty of conspiracy to commit burglary and grand larceny in a plot to steal Ted's estate and his silver. I actually agree. I do think that they're scumbags. Based on when, how bad the whole excavation was of them stealing the silver and it was in a hurried fashion, two days after he died, I think if this had been properly planned out, they would have found a way to do it at a different time or a way before he died, or she could have tricked him into something. It seems very poorly thought out. And I think when we're talking about those seven minutes or them planning things, I think it was almost more, he is dead how do we capitalize on this? I still think that they tried to steal every single thing that wasn't bolted down that they could get from him and his estate. And I think that's scummy. I think that they're cheaters and that's scummy. I do not necessarily believe that they killed Ted. Yeah, okay. I think it's one of those things where they might have encouraged him to do drugs. They might have looked the other way when he was ODing. They might have been responsible insofar as they did not help him if he was in distress. Yeah. I do not think it was clear cut as sitting on his chest or the wine glass. So about the wine glass. Yeah. Did they figure out what that is? No, I think she was just drinking and she didn't want people to know. Wow, really? My gut feeling was that she realized that the video camera was on her and there was a wine glass right there. And she was supposed to be grieving and in distress. And she didn't want people to think that she was lushing it up. It's as chill as that. Yeah. I honestly think it's as something as like, I'm trying to hide the fact that I've just been drinking during this entire experience. Yeah. So that would be my gut feeling. Okay. So did these larcenous lovebirds end up together? No. Obviously not. They never do. This is like crime never pays in love. So they both got out of jail. Well, Sandy Murphy got out of jail first. She got out of jail immediately because they were still convicted of the larceny and the conspiracy. So she did time served and she was out immediately. 
he didn't get out for six more years. So he served six more years after that, but he eventually got out in 2010. So Sandy Murphy married an art dealer named Kevin something something. I'm not even going to go into it. doesn't matter. In 2009, and the two run an art gallery in Laguna Beach, and I believe they now have children. She was interviewed for like the Orange Coast or the Gold Coast, I don't know, some magazine. When she was like 38, she's posing and talking about putting it behind her and how much she loves art, which is really funny given this video of her walking around being like, Yes. The Luther Gunter and the Vargas. They can't have the Vargas. So apparently it really was her passion. I looked up this gallery and it has some questionable Yelp reviews, guys. I'm not going to say what it is. We will talk about it. Maybe it's something we'll discuss at the next Patreon get together. But I do not, they're still operating this place, so I do not want to get myself in any legal trouble. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But feel free to do a Google search. That's how I found it. And there was one that's like, the guy's wife is a murderer, and that's not fair. That's like, (laughs) yeah, that's that's not fair. Let's leave that out. Shirdy did the beach walking interview where she's trying to leave it behind her. Like, let's just like, (laughs) talk about the art. Yeah, she was acquitted in the second trial. Let's leave that out. It's like other stuff that I'm talking about, like other allegations in the Yelp reviews. So Rick Tavish did get out in 2010. He's divorced from his first wife, poor Mary Jo. And he now works in the cryptocurrency space in North Dakota. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. His company, FX Solutions, shockingly close to FTX, <laughs> was overseeing the construction of a one9 billion dollar data center and i think it was something to do with cryptocurrency mining so he was rolling in it in cryptocurrency at least as late as 2019 the crypto bubble has really burst lately so i don't know how he's doing right now i did send it to nathaniel he does not know him personally but he said that he is looking forward to doing a future patreon exclusive about crypto crimes and criminals rick tabish has stayed out of trouble So since he's been released, he has repaid his parents for all of the legal money help. He has been on the up and up, apparently. He has also gotten remarried and now has two small children. He kind of, he went from looking like a handsome, like, young guy to, like, a small Will Ferrell. (laughs) Okay. No offense to Will Ferrell. I love Will Ferrell. But you'll see when you see the pictures. There is a Lifetime movie about this. And I have to say, the casting is just chef's kiss. Matthew Modine plays Ted Binion. Wow. He is unhinged. Papa from Stranger Things is freaking unhinged. His performance is so wild. It is worth the price of admission. And for me, the price of admission was buying it on Amazon Prime. (laughs) Mina Savari is Sandy. Amazing. Yep. And I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name either. Jonathan Seich. Seich. He was the lead singer in That Thing You Do that movie. And he was also engaged to Christina Applegate. I love that thing you do. I love that thing you do. Of course you do, because the lead character is a drummer, like a really tall drummer. I know. He was so cute. Thomas Anderson, whatever his name is, he's so cute in that. So the guy who plays the lead singer played Rick. And Marsha Gay Harden plays Becky Binion Bannon. And she is a revelation She is just a total badass with this crazy accent who is just laying Sandy to waste, who's calling the shots, who is just the best. So between Marsha Gay Harden 
and Matthew Modine. I mean, they are just like, they are chomping up. They're chomping up that Lifetime movie. Eating, 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 no crumbs. Is that what the kids say these days? I have no idea. I've never heard that. (laughs) You've never heard it? No. Oh my gosh, Andy. I can't believe I'm cooler than you. You are. (laughs) In conclusion, kids don't do drugs, especially heroin. Yeah, especially heroin. And also, I would be a little weary about if you're at a strip club and there's someone selling Dallas Cowboy (laughs) or Cowgirl uniforms. Like, there might be ulterior motives there. I don't know if you can trust anyone that you meet for the first time at a strip club. I'm not talking about the girls that work there. I'm talking about just like anyone you're just hanging out with that you meet there. Just, you know, give us some time before you really trust them. Yeah, not three days. (laughs) And as always... Trust your gut when it comes to love so no one steals your millions of dollars and tons of silver bullion. <laughs> Bye. Bye. 